From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, May 8th, 2023. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, the tension between a moderate party and a militant base. Plus, attempts to ban books are at record-breaking levels. And reflections on the history of art and activism. Plus, we're in Pledge Drive. Call 202-588-9739 or visit us online at wpfw.org to make a donation. All that and more. Stay with us. Today is the second day of our spring membership drive. The theme is Always There. And we'll have more later in the show about how you can become a member of WPFW and support this show and this station and make sure we are always there. But first, a story about what happens when the cultural resources we count on to be there are threatened. It's happening right now in libraries. Last month, the American Library Association released its most recent State of America's Libraries report. The report covers what happened in 2022 and has this subtitle, quote, Libraries Adapt and Innovate in the Midst of Record-Breaking Censorship Challenges, close quote. To learn more about this frontline battle in our nation's culture wars, and how libraries and librarians are responding, we spoke with Lessa Kanani Opua Palayo Lozada, president of the American Library Association. Yeah, so that culture war continues, and libraries are being used as pawns for positionality and power of individuals who want to enforce their ideals and their ways of life on other individuals. And so what we saw in 2022 was a continued increase in the number of challenges that our libraries have, um, that our Office of Intellectual Freedom has tracked. And it was, again, the highest number of challenges in 2022 that the office has ever tracked, just as it was the highest number of challenges in 2021. The American Library Association defines a book challenge as an attempt to remove or restrict materials based on the objections of a person or group. And until recently, the vast majority of challenges to library books and resources were brought by a single parent who sought to remove or restrict access to a book their child was reading. But in looking at the number of challenges for 2022, Not only did the American Library Association see what amounted to almost double the number of challenges in 2021, from 729 challenges to 1,269, but also evidence of another disturbing trend, which points to what the report describes as, quote, evidence of a growing, well-organized, conservative political movement whose goals include removing books addressing race, history, gender identity, sexuality, and reproductive health from America's public libraries, close quote. Over 90% of the 1,200 attempts 
were for multiple titles, whereas in the past it used to be one-to-one. -one. Um, one challenge might equal one or two books that are being challenged. And what we also saw out of those 1,200 attempts is that 40% of them were challenges against 100 or more books. And so these lists of books that are, organ that are from organized attempts to censor are part of these culture wars that are trying to divide our communities and to silence diverse voices because the number, the types of books that we are seeing challenged focus on LGBTQ plus and brown and indigenous people of color stories and histories. Lessa Kanani Opua Palayo Lozada makes the point that most of these books were challenged for being sexually explicit, an often undefined term that can be used to obscure other agendas. Like when we say, when people challenge things for being sexually explicit, what does that mean? There is no definition of being sexually explicit. And these challenges are intentionally unclear as to what exactly they are approaching, but really what the important thing here to remember is that not every book is for every reader, but every reader deserves to have a book that speaks to them and that they can see themselves in. And the importance of a family's right to determine what their family reads is essential. You know, as library workers, we are trained to help individuals pick what is right for them and their family, but they do not have that right to dictate to other individuals' families. To get an idea of what some of those books are that are being challenged and removed from libraries, the American Library Association, on the same day it released its new report, it released its highly anticipated list of the most challenged books of 2022. Maya Kobabe's Gender Queer took the top spot with 151 challenges and George M. Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue occupied second place with 86 challenges. Toni Morrison's classic novel The Bluest Eye took the third spot with 73 challenges. Of particular note is that in previous years the list has been a top 10, but this year it had to be expanded because there were so many books challenged in 2022 that it wasn't just a top 10 list, it was expanded to 13 for a number of ties. Um, most of the reasons for the LGBTQ-based titles was that they were sexually explicit, taking one or two passages or panels completely out of context and misrepresenting the intended audience of those books and the availability of those books. Of course, as Palayo Lozada makes clear, America's librarians are not going to let this rising demand to ban books in school and public libraries across the United States unfold without fighting back to keep books on the shelves. And here's what that fight looks like. Yeah, so we do so in a number of ways. We do so um, through strong policies and procedures. Every library should have a collection development policy that outlines what we purchase and why we purchase it, as well as a policy and procedure for when somebody disagrees with a title that's in our library. But I think that it's really important here to note that library workers cannot fight censorship challenges alone. We have to have everybody having that conversation and being vocal with us because we know that it is a vocal minority who are in support of book bans. In March of 2022, ALA did a, sur a, non a survey 
and found bipartisan support. Over 71% of voters polled, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, 71% did not support book challenges in public libraries. And so what we have is a campaign called Unite Against Book Bans. And at uniteagainstbookbans.org, individuals can take the pledge to stand with us against censorship, but they can also find a toolkit and resources to use in making the case in their own communities. Whether they, we have talking points so that individuals can write an op-ed so that they can go to their school and library boards. Um, we also have ideas for hosting a banned books club so that folks can read these passages in the context that they were intended to be read in and to understand why books are challenged and what value and impact titles can have on different members of the community. So we really need everybody all in on this to help us. Of course, fighting back against censorship wasn't the only challenge libraries and librarians faced in 2022. As the new report states, quote, the COVID-19 pandemic continued to impact communities in 2022, particularly in terms of digital equity. Libraries took the reins masterfully offering technological and connectivity assistance to those in need, close quote. Yeah, it absolutely did continue into 2022. There were some different approaches that we took in 2022 versus 21 because most of our libraries were at this point reopened and had people in their, in their um, spaces as well as more outreach to the community. Um, and so some of the differences that we saw were in trying to support individuals um, coming out of isolation to create community spaces, as well as acting upon some of the, many of the digital inequities that we saw during 2020 and 2021, especially. Um, for instance, the Las Vegas Clark County Library District in Nevada um, you know, closed its doors at the start of the pandemic. And so there were technological barriers, of course, especially with uh, folks who were unhoused. And so they launched last year a cell phone lending program for the unhoused that has pre-programmed social service provider contacts that has contacts that offer easy assistance with food and healthcare and housing. And these call are these phones they can check out for an 18 month period, have unlimited calls, as well as 5G hotspot capability. So some of those inequities that we saw in 21, we're really finding creative solutions to in 2022. And as they have done since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, libraries continue to offer reliable and trustworthy information about COVID-19 as a counter to the spread of health misinformation. So in 2022, I think that we continued our diligence in ensuring that our communities um, had access to accurate information, that we continued to provide them with accurate information, and that we were seen as trusted resources um, to not have a bias one way or another so that individuals could trust us to help them figure out um, you know, do, do the, the literacy part, you know, the critical literacy part, whether it's digital literacy um, or, or whatever, to help with their critical thinking to figure things out. Um, I think that that has been something that libraries do and have done for many, many years. And so it's baked into our regular services now. As is the ongoing commitment 
in our nation's libraries to provide everyone access to the Internet, something the American Library Association sees as a fundamental right critical to the functioning of democracy in America, even when we are not in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, so, um, you know, to, according to us at the American Library Association, broadband is a right. And broadband is a right because, as we saw throughout COVID, our society cannot function without access to the Internet and without access to strong and reliable Wi-Fi, whether it is for personal connection, you know, communicating with family and friends if you're in isolation or if you are far away from them, whether it is for personal growth and education if you're doing schooling on there. So many jobs have gone remote now that access to, you know, broadband and strong Wi-Fi are essential to earning a living. You know, within libraries, I think that we have seen such an increase also in individuals who are working from the library, you know, as their space for reliable computer access and, and reliable Wi-Fi, um, that we, we continue to promote all of the different ways that we can support it, whether it is through laptop lending or mobile hotspots and Wi-Fi. Um, there are so many opportunities for us um, to be able to promote and encourage access. Kanani Opua Palayo Lozada reminds us that librarians need our support in this battle. Yeah, you know, absolutely check out banned books from your libraries. Before you even have a book challenge, write to your library board, write to your library directors to let them know the impact that books have made on you and your family and how much you value the diversity of their collections. You know, I think all workers enjoy hearing they're doing a good job, but library workers especially need to hear that and have that reinforced right now. Or if folks have the wherewithal, run for your local library and school board. We would love to have pro pro-book folks on those boards. Lessa Kanani Opua Palayo Lozada is president of the American Library Association. To see their most recent State of America's Libraries report, visit ALA.org, where you can also see the top 13 most challenged books of 2022. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. That piece you just heard is just one of literally hundreds of pieces we do every year on Monday Morning QB to fulfill our mission to keep you up to date on the latest news and developments in our world with perspectives, insights, points of view that turn our news programming into something that is enlightening to our listeners and your concerns, and not just a rehash of what is being carried more broadly. Let's not forget the words of Ida B. Wells, quote, the only way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them, close quote. So help us make sure that we are always there to do just that, playing the music you love and advancing issues of social justice in D.C., in our region, and around the globe. You can do that by calling 
1-800-926-9739. You can pledge online anywhere, anytime at WPFWFM.org or use Cash App with dollar sign WPFW. Once again, that number is 1-800-222-9739. The website, WPFWFM.org or use Cash App with dollar sign WPFW. And thank you for your generous support. TV and movie screenwriters walked out on strike last week to demand stable work and better pay, just the latest group of workers to take action over workplace disputes. Last month, an historic strike at Rutgers University won job security and salary increases for thousands of academic workers. Thousands of teachers in Oakland are currently on picket lines, fighting for similar goals. Overall, strike activity jumped by 50% last year, with the number of workers involved up 60%, according to Cornell University researchers. This heightened militancy among workers stands in contrast with the political moderacy of Democratic Party leadership, writes Bob Henley, an independent journalist and author. Henley, in a recent piece for Salon detailing strike activity, referred to unions as the, quote, arms and legs of the party, end quote, and predicted continued divergence between Democratic leadership and its electoral base. What lessons can we draw from this experience? Henley looks to history. So, yeah, so the frame of this is I'm speaking as someone who is 67 and so started uh, my career in journalism at 17. So that's a lot of time, more time than I want to realize. And what I'm seeing is that there is a a quickening pace in terms of the level of activism. Uh, in some ways, it reminds me of uh, the, the 60s because in the 60s, there was the sense of imminent peril because if you're of a certain age and you were male or loved somebody who was a male, you were worried about them being drafted to a war that there uh, collectively we came to understand was an abomination. And so there's a grassroots response to that across the country that transcended zip codes. And then through the leadership of Martin Luther King, uh, we came to see it as a part and parcel that kind of like connecting the dots between the uh, economic deprivation that tens of millions of Americans were forced to live in often along racial lines and the expenditures overseas uh, in the forms of multi-billions of dollars for wars that never seemed to end. So scroll forward uh, many decades and we find ourselves in a period of time where within the last few years, we've had both a pandemic, a mass death event, and an insurrection where for the first time in American history, we had a Confederate flag fly inside the Capitol. Uh, and then we have also the entire um, circumstances set in uh, a climate crisis where we're becoming increasingly aware, particularly your generation, that this is a planet of limits, that what we do has consequences in a very profound way in the life cycle. And so all these things are pulling together where people have a certain sense of 
imminence. And so uh, also at the same time, we've had a concentration of wealth that's unprecedented, really. It harkens back to the Gilded Age. So what we've seen is during the pandemic, this period of time of a mass death event where 1.1 million Americans perished, uh, by conservative estimates, the GAO says 1 million Americans have been sidelined uh, in terms of work as a disability from it. Several million more Americans have a daily um, reminder of COVID in the form of some form of symptoms of varying severity. At that same time, we saw also essential workers die by the tens of thousands, a federal government that seems, with the exception of nursing home workers, didn't even keep track of the dead bodies of the essential workers. And then during this exact same period of crisis, we had an expansion of wealth that accelerated from the unacceptable levels that was already kind of the preconditions for the pandemic. So the the fundamental question is, uh, if not now, when? Amidst this increased militancy, clearly motivated by these crises that you're talking about, it seems that leadership in the Democratic Party is still beholden to a more moderated approach to achieving change, right? In the last several years, they've failed to reform the filibuster. Um, you've written about how the Biden administration imposed this unpopular contract on rail workers, um, much to the angst of a lot of the labor movement. What explains this disparity? Because clearly these crises are motivating militancy on the base. Why aren't those same crises motivating militancy or urgency among the Democratic Party leadership? So I would say that Sheldon Whitehouse's book that talks about campaign finance is a good uh, a fundamental to have. The idea that when the degree to which that you have campaign finance um, in, in infecting the the process of decision making and prioritizing is a degree to which you're going to have this um, systemic disconnect because the forces that are able to throw millions of dollars at the Democratic Party and their candidates are antithetical to the long-term interests of humanity and certainly uh, by association, the base. And so that's why you see, for instance, um, Senator Sanders had this great campaign and the sensibility AOC has followed. That's based on this kind of microfinancing, but it's still not enough. And so where where this is actually now uh, a clear and present danger to the republic and to the well-being of the nation is the fact that after a mass death event, health care has to be seen as the number one labor issue. Why do I say that? Well, the United States Senate and, uh, and the House have been unable, every time somebody, Senator Menendez or somebody proposes, let's have a 9-11 commission-style review an after-action, uh, objective, academic view of what happened with the COVID response. They can't bring that to a vote. And so here we've had this mass death event, and we what do we know? We know that we're 4% of the world's population, and 12% of the body count from COVID globally. That is what I call the private health care premium. There's a direct connection between our excess mortality, and this is borne out by, I was on a Zoom call with Reverend Barbara and Jeffrey Sachs last year, where they took the data and looked at the county-by-county county death rate, 
from COVID, racial uh, makeup and, and financial makeup of a household. And it jumps out as a heat map. The places where there was an obstruction to healthcare, where access was limited or problematic, is where you have your highest death rate. Why is this relevant to the body politic? Because, and I don't want to get too old te- New Testament on you here, but as it turns out, the instructions in Matthew about being concerned about your neighbor, that's basic public health. If you have a part of town that it's hit hard by an infectious disease and people die in large numbers, that's your problem in Hollywood and in the gated communities of this nation. And the failure of our politics to recognize that inherent threat matrix means that we are really ignoring the most important lesson that we have coming out of these last few years of misery and death. You know, when I was a student organizer, we emphasized a distinction between strategy and tactics, where strategy referred to overarching goals and the process by which they're they're achieved, while tactics referred to particular kinds of actions, you know, educational tactics versus legal tactics versus street tactics like protesting. Does this militancy versus moderation gap in the Democratic Party that we've been discussing rise to the level of a strategic difference between party leadership and rank and file? Or should we understand it more as simply a tactical disparity where goals and process are the same, but we just differ on on small steps? Well, I would say that um, there is a sense of uh, urgency that is directly related to where you are in the pyramid. So if you're in a situation to orient you, I'm sitting in Neptune, New Jersey. It is a um, a racially diverse community. It's a community that's made up of essential workers. And so it's a, it's a, it's one that really felt the pandemic keenly and is still feeling it. That people do not have a lot of disposable income um, where we have um, a lot of uh, civil servants of color who are around my age are ready to retire or thinking of leaving because the economics no longer work for them. They have to return to the South where, you know, they may have left because they left for a lack of opportunity. Um, it's, it's a sad circumstance because often young people have to leave because of the economics that exists now in states like New Jersey, where the wealth disparity has become obscene. Uh, and so there's a sense of urgency in that. And you and you encounter it when you walk to the stop and shop and speak with the union workers there. And so, yeah, if you're in that universe, you don't have time. In fact, you may be so busy working your three jobs that you don't have time to be engaged politically. But you have a sense that something is really wrong. You may have an extended family where several people died from COVID. That's going to be a very different reality than the people in the Beltway who are driven around in black cars who pretty much have, it's a question of what do we do with our 401k? And, you know, you, and as somebody who's having to work, even though I have a pension from after tag, I'm still going to have to work the rest of my natural life. Um, I, the, my wife and I had the radical notion of wanting our daughters to have a college education and we will be punished. <laughs> and so that's where we are. And so there's just a vast disparity between people that are professional political fixers who are shaping our identity. I mean, how can MSNBC 
and and they do good work. There's some good work there, but how can those folks who are existing in that universe have any understanding of the clear and present anxiety working class Americans feel? Lastly, you know, as we creep into this election season, if we're not already in it, Democratic Party leadership seems to be trying to motivate the base by appealing to fears about Trump and the GOP far right, similar to the messaging in 2020. And I think this is evidenced by Biden's recent campaign announcement video where he's playing footage from January 6th and talking about MAGA extremists. Um, In your view, will this be an effective way to channel the militancy of the base into electoral success next year? And if not, what does the party leadership need to do differently in terms of of messaging or in channeling that that anger, that militancy? So I would say that this is uh, gets to your question of strategy and tactics. And so what I would say is that we have to expand our view and talk about what what's the goal that we have to have. So the goal is uh, to actually make the Republican Party electorally extinct. Uh, to force it into the kind of um, disappearance we saw with the Whigs. And so the way to do that is by having a transformation of our politics of the grassroots so that in every House district and in every U.S. Senate seat uh, and in every regional election, there is this uh, democratic wave, which is tsunami in scope. How do you achieve that? Uh, you have to move on many fronts because you're talking about nothing short of a cultural and uh, political revolution. How do you do that? You have to motivate people and engage people who, for now, like I described, brothers and sisters here in Neptune who may not have voted, who are people of color who work hard every day, uh, who do not feel that politics have engaged them. And this is what um, Dr. Reverend William Barber refers to as a sleeping giant. And as a tactical matter, there are tens of millions of working low wealth households uh, that um, are registered to vote uh, and yet uh, are engaged with uh, hit or miss by the Democratic Party. So that means you have to have a message for those people, the hidden army, uh, the folks that ironically are the essential workers, um, that you are going that their vote is going to set into motion a transformation of America from the bottom up that um, will be like the New Deal. So that means that you have to own the fact that the current Democratic Party failed to raise the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour, where it's been sucked from since 2009, that um, it, that we have not, um, uh, we, we need to be talking about making um, actual violation of labor law, like the way that Amazon and Starbucks play, which is to just hire law firms, break the law, and pay the fine. We need to start attaching criminal sanctions. It needs to be that if you violate U.S. labor law and a court of competent jurisdictions finds that you are violating it, your CEO goes to jail. He's indicted. There's a trial. Because we have to come to see that the time of our life working is precious. It's a finite resource. It has to be treated with the same spiritual and philosophical value that's in all of the world's great religious teachings. And so it's the time of our life we're talking about. And as we've learned from the pandemic, none of us names the 
time and date of our departure. So our law has to uphold the value of work and working people. Anything short of that is a sop to capital. And they've had their turn. So this is what I mean by speaking. And I'll give you a practical example of how they've left money on the table, literally left money on the table. During the Inflation Reduction Act and the uh, phase out of the coronavirus aid, there was an expanded child tax credit. And that still is money sitting in the U.S. Treasury. As I speak to you now, there are billions of dollars sitting in the U.S. Treasury that as many as 5 million American households could avail themselves of retroactively. There is no other job for a member of Congress more important than matching constituents to that money. So here's a practical reality from an old organizer. Organize phone calls and phone banks, calling and reaching out in Spanish and English and all the languages. We're with the Democratic Party. We're here to help. Have you collected this money that's sitting in the Treasury? Be relevant to the struggle of people in real time. Then after you've helped them get four or $5,000 so that Juan and everybody can get back to school with a backpack or whatever, or have a great Christmas, then you say, are you registered to vote? That's Bob Henley, journalist and author, most recently of Stuck Nation, Can the U.S. Change the Course of Its History of Choosing Profits Over People?, published by Democracy at Work. He writes regularly for Salon, Work Bites, Insider NJ, and The Village Voice. Read more of Henley's work by visiting stucknation.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. We are taking a brief break from the show to celebrate a musical birthday. Mary Lou Williams, the great jazz pianist and composer, was born on this day in the year 1910. A musical prodigy, Williams went on to play with DC's hometown legend Duke Ellington and mentored some of jazz's most beloved artists, including Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk. From her inaugural album, Zodiac Suite, here is Williams playing the song Scorpio.
We are in Pledge Drive this morning. Support this great radio station and our flagship news show by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 and making a pledge now. You can also visit our website, wpfw.org, and click on the big Donate Now button. WPFW has been on the air for over 45 years, consistently broadcasting music and information that is important to the functioning of our local community. Our station's work is built on shared trust with our listeners, an understanding that we will stand firm through tough times to continue our necessary operations. Just in my four and a half years here at the station, WPFW has thrived through a tough political climate, two government shutdowns, a pandemic, a recession, the biggest protests in a generation, the loss of essential staff, and much more. We are resilient thanks entirely to the generous support of our listeners, to whom we owe a great responsibility. Help us continue our work of broadcasting jazz and justice in the nation's capital by making a pledge today. We have a goal of $500 this hour. Call 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739 and pledge your support today. If you're out of area, call 1-800-222-9739. That's 1-800-222-9739. Or anywhere in the world, Hop online and visit us at WPFW.org. Click the big red Donate Now button on the side of the screen. Back to the show. We continue the show with a piece from our archives. In March of 2020, when we learned that President Biden placed a bust of civil rights leader and farm workers union organizer Cesar Chavez in a prominent spot in the Oval Office, bumping out a bust of Winston Churchill. It's a welcome recognition of what Chavez accompanied. But the decision to bring the bust into the president's office begs a question. What kind of policy action will make it more than just a symbol? Sue Goodwin filed this report. If the question is how to honor Cesar Chavez, not only with prime positioning in the Oval Office, but also in action, it makes sense to start with remembering who he was and what he stood for. Chavez dedicated his life to advocating for farm workers. Here he is giving a speech in 1984 to the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. All my life, I have been driven by one dream, one goal, one vision. To overthrow a farm labor system in this nation that treats farm workers as if they were not important human beings. Farm workers are not agricultural implements. They are not beasts of burden to be used and discarded. Cesar Chavez speaking in 1984 to the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. Chavez realized the vision he spoke about by being a labor organizer. In 1962, he was one of the founders of the UFW, the United Farm Workers of America. 
In his fight to improve pay and working conditions for farm laborers, Chavez modeled his methods on the nonviolent civil disobedience of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. And what he and the UFW accomplished is now legendary. Armando Ibarra is professor at the School for Workers and director of Chicano Latino Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He describes how Chavez's leadership helped build a movement that went far beyond the farm worker communities he fought for. And you have a leader in Chavez that's able to create an organizing campaign that includes workers at the point of production in the fields, that includes community allies in the surrounding areas, and also able to inspire a whole country of folks that eventually become allies to a movement, to the farm work and labor movement. To me, that undertaking, that ability to put forth a vision that's based on economic democracy and dignity, where it aligns with, with the masses, is inspiring. Upon hearing the news that a bust of Chavez was now in the White House, Armando Ibarra was inspired to write a piece for the progressive titled, Paying Symbolic Tribute to Cesar Chavez is Not Enough. And in that piece, he writes that no matter how hard they work, most farm workers will never achieve the American dream. So to be the American dream is to be able to work and for there to be fair wages, and dignity on the job. That is as simple that I can say about the American dream, where you exchange your labor for wages in a way that's equitable for both the worker and and, and the boss or the owners. And once you have that kind of balance, then everything else, in my humble estimation, falls into place. You're able to care for your families. You're able to purchase your home. You're able to have health insurance. You're able to live a life with dignity. Currently, as it is, the power balances between most agricultural workers in the agricultural corporate system is imbalanced, right? Right. And what drives that imbalance is the fact that agricultural workers are not protected by federal labor rights law. The National Labor Relations Act of 1935 governs labor relations in most of the private sector. It guarantees the right of private sector employees to organize into trade unions, engage in collective bargaining, and take collective action, such as going out on a strike. But to pass the act back in 1935, it needed the support of white Southern senators. So a compromise was made to exclude two classes of private sector employees. And that was farm workers and domestic workers. And at that time in the South, these workers were mostly African-American. So that racism is already built into that act. It was already structurally embedded into labor relations even there. Come 90 years forward, the fact that farm workers, that they don't have the same federally protected labor rights because they're excluded, it makes it that much more difficult to organize into labor unions because it's different in every state. And um, in some places, they don't have rights at all. And, and there are select states where there are um, agricultural state-protected rights. For example, in, here in Wisconsin, farm workers have a right to organize. In places like California, they have a right to organize. So not to have 
the same rights as other workers or the same labor rights as other workers that are federal protected has been an impediment and continues to create the exploitable conditions that farm workers labor under. It's as simple as that. In his piece for The Progressive, Ibarra writes the best way to honor Chavez and the United Farm Workers of America now is to pass legislation such as the Fairness for Farm Workers Act, introduced in 2019. That went nowhere in the last Congress, but is expected to be reintroduced. And, and let's, let's push this a little bit more aggressively forward to honor domestic workers' labor rights as well. A worker is a worker is a worker, regardless of industry, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of immigration status. A worker is a worker. And those workers, um, all workers should be afforded the same level of rights that can help them engage in democratic practices to better their working conditions at their employment sites. So that is what the Fairness for Agricultural Workers Act would basically bring to the table, is to include agricultural workers as, as recognized under the National Labor Relations Act, and thus being granted all the federally protected labor rights that almost all other private sector industry workers have. Armando Ibarra says the importance of farm workers to American life isn't always recognized, something that has come into fresh relief with the pandemic. They still show up to work every day and prepare and harvest much of the food that the rest of us consume, right? So these unsung heroes of our country um, deserve their place in our collective memory as a nation. Before we ended our conversation, Armando Ibarra wanted to add one final thought. Oh, sure. I, I just wanted to just give you a little bit about the organizing that is taking place um, in places like Oregon, Washington, California. The UFW is still organizing, still battling the legal fight, which has kept many of their organizing drive from really going in and being able to gain contract with workers. I, I want to give a shout out as well and talk about the Farm Labor Organizing Committee that's organizing H2B workers, also the Immokalee workers that have been organizing in the Florida area and now across the, the East Coast in their fights to make gains for workers out there as well. So there's still a vibrant farm worker labor movement in our country that continues to gain every day on its goal to democratize the workplaces. Armando Ibarra is a professor at the School for Workers and Director of Chicano Latino Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is also lead author of the book, The Latino Question, Politics, Laboring Classes, and the Next Left. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. We celebrated the life and music of Harry Belafonte last week, and we do so again this week. Belafonte was one of many guests of honor at last year's 50th anniversary celebration for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which Belafonte had greatly supported with his time and money. Here is the superlative musician and activist performing with SNCC organizers 
a revised version of his classic song, Deo.
And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Please join us next Monday and visit WPFWFM.org to become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. <laughs>